Hello and welcome to the penultimate MIT Press podcast of 2020. Today I'll be interviewing Michael Trussello about his book, Infrastructural Brutalism, Art and the Necropolitics of Infrastructure, published in September of this year by the MIT Press. In his book, Michael looks at industrial infrastructure not as an invisible system of connectivity and mobility that keeps capitalism humming away in the background, but instead he considers it as a central driver of capitalism's suicidal trajectory. Drawing on a diverse range of sources, from J.G. Bollard to The Wizard of Oz, and theorists such as Franco Bifo Berardi and Paul Virilio, Michael moves between geography, infrastructure studies and critical theory to produce an analysis of the particularly grim landscape we inhabit today, as well as suggestions as to how we might change it. The open access edition of this book was made possible by generous funding from Arcadia, a charitable fund of Lisbeth Rousing and Peter Baldwin. Finally, I'd like to encourage those that enjoy the podcast to subscribe and keep an eye out for our final episode of 2020, which will feature a discussion between Eugene Richardson and Bruno Latour. I thought a good way to start off uh, is to kind of introduce the book slightly because you know, there's, there's a, you're writing about a lot of different things. You know, you're writing about infrastructure, you're writing about potential apocalypse and about colonialism. And I think a lot of listeners will probably understand that there are relationships between those things. And I wondered if we could start, I was going to ask you to kind of explain the relationship between colonialism, infrastructure, and the trajectory of kind of ecological collapse in your writing. How do those things link together in what you're exploring in this book? Infrastructural brutalism is the term that I'm using to describe a sort of conjunction of things in the current moment. And and so I, I should probably establish that first. You have on the one hand, of course, multiple ecological crises, climate change, biodiversity loss, potentially the sixth mass extinction event in the history of the planet. And the primary cause, not the only cause, but the primary cause of those things, of course, is industrial capitalism. And on the other hand, you simultaneously, you have in global industrial capitalism engaged in the largest, most substantial infrastructure project in history. In fact, if you were to just take the nation of China alone and the Belt and Road Initiative there, you would have the largest infrastructure project in history. So instead of hitting the brakes, which of course capitalism is incapable of doing, it is actually accelerating, increasing its commitment to an ecocidal system. So that's that's part of the brutality that, that I'm describing. And of course, all of this has its kind of foundational moments in colonialism. Many of the infrastructure projects, I discuss this especially in terms of the railway lines, because how they are constructed in former colonies is along the lines that it services primitive accumulation. You know, it, it services the rapid extraction of resources from the colonies to be used for so-called wealth production at the center of empire. 
Uh, and this goes under many names. There's railway colonialism, railway imperialism. Others have talked about this. Part of, I guess, the, the unique gesture in my book is to take some of this history around colonialism and infrastructure and to frame it in terms of artistic media and to frame in infrastructure in particular as uh, as a sort of necropolitical assemblage. So in what ways does infrastructure determine who may live and who must die? And I'm sort of triangulating that with the sort of social scientific facts about infrastructure, but also reading it through artistic media. So in, in the case, you know, your question is about colonialism. I deal with that throughout the book, but especially in the chapter on death train narratives. So this is one of the genres of artistic media that I examine in order to talk about the necropolitics of infrastructure. Death trains begin kind of in the colonial period in the late 19th century in Africa. You have the Ugandan railway as the primary example in which the death dealing of, of that particular techno-social assemblage is in its construction. And you have many migrant laborers who are, are sort of employed to, in very dangerous conditions, build this railway project. I kind of trace that the narratives of death trains then through the next century. So you can look at, obviously, around World War II, there's the Burma Railroad, and this was an attempt by the Japanese army to use not only civilians, but thousands of prisoners of war to try to build this railway line, and thousands died in the, in the process. It was a, you know, a, a use of slave labor, and so it's this tremendously necropolitical project. Of course, you have also the, the death trains of the Holocaust. And I talk about the, the logistical centrality of those trains to the intensity of the killing in the Holocaust. I sort of move forward into also fictional examples. So throughout the book, where I'm dealing with both historical examples of uh, infrastructure, but also artistic representations of, the, of those historical examples. By the end of the death train chapter, I'm, I'm talking about fictional death trains like in the film Snowpiercer and in the film Train to Busan, where you have different perspectives of the relationship between revolution and infrastructure in Snowpiercer, you have the example from, from below, you could say. It's the people at the back of the train who, you know, are just considered surplus labor in that world and who stage a, a rebellion and try to get to the front of the train only to realize that seizing the engine was maybe not the actual goal of a successful revolution. And I think there's a lesson in there for the challenges that lay ahead, even if we are to remove capitalism as, as a force that exploits people and the natural world, it will mean more than simply 
so-called seizing the means of production, right? Because the means of production in industrial capitalism are inherently ecocidal. So you need to also transform the infrastructure that's involved if there is to be a a sort of post-capital world. And then, of course, Train to Poussin kind of takes the example of revolution and infrastructure, and it looks at it from the perspective of from the perspective of the bourgeoisie. So you have this guy who works in finance and he's the central character in the story. And at first, the zombie outbreak that's the framework for the film, it appears to him uh, and others as a strike. Uh, They think that there's a, a general strike happening. And I think that's a kind of deliberate framing to show a zombie outbreak as you know, how the bourgeoisie would perceive a revolution, what it would seem like to them. And then, and then you have this story of the redemption of the capitalist in, throughout the, the rest of the film. But again, the, the emphasis is on the relationship among infrastructure, revolution, and, and life itself, right? And how do we reorient those elements in order to make something that is somewhat sustainable versus the current condition, which has a trajectory of centuries, of course. And so nobody is suggesting that it's going to be an easy thing. But part of my argument, I I think, is responding to some arguments on the left and in liberal circles that suggest that um, oil capitalism is something that will simply be like priced out of the market, priced out of existence, or that simply creating renewable energy sources will be enough to sort of tip the balance in favor of a, of a sustainable society. And uh, I guess I don't see it that way. I think these things like fossil fuel industries will continue to aggressively push for rapid extraction of resources well beyond the point that uh, scientists have identified as as sort of the point of no return. So that's the history of this colonial system and the ideological commitments of that system as well. Yeah, how do you address the fact that they've already captured the state? It's a kind of huge, you know, why would they surrender that? When I was reading your book, actually, one thing that it reminded me of, uh, it had a kind of similar flavor to Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher. And I mean, there's a lot of kind of similar reference points, talking about Deleuze points and Franco B. Fibrati. Uh, and you're kind of bringing them into a dialogue with popular culture. And I wanted to ask you about, in a lot of ways, it's a very bleak book, and it's a very kind of disturbing book, and you, and you address the problematics of, of writing about how bad things are without producing the kind of affect of sort of like apathy and disengagement. But I also think that writing in that way produces a kind of hopefulness that's kind of hard to get otherwise. And I was wondering if you could... Talk about writing about that and uh, how you kind of navigate those polarities, I suppose. Yeah, on the left, there's been much discussion over the past 20 years about catastrophism, right? The idea that presenting certain scientific facts about the, the ecological situation might be so depressing and debilitating that people will not take action as a result. Like it's a kind of fatalism. But I kind of take issue with that in the book because I think looking at some recent environmentalist documentaries in particular, 
what you see is, is a reaction in the opposite direction. So there's an overcorrection that happens. So I talk about Naomi Klein's documentary, This Changes Everything. There are the uh, Chasing Coral and Chasing Ice documentaries and some others. Uh, Racing Extinction, which, <laughs> which is one of, one of my favorites maybe because one of the heroes in it is Elon Musk and it presents like a race car driver who, who is an advocate for the environment or something. But in those examples, setting aside, this changes everything, which I think generally is pretty good. But most of the examples, they shy away from even mentioning the word capitalism. So they've sort of overcorrected to the extent that you are understating the nature of the situation. I think these documentaries are producing... They're understating the nature of the problem and they're overstating how effective minor reforms can be in solving the problem. So what you see in many of them is a kind of technophilic fetish. So, you know, high technology combined with markets will solve all of the problems, even though high technology and the markets are literally what have caused most of the problems that we, that we face. And there's a reluctance there to name the system that is most responsible. So I think in certain circles, the response to catastrophism, which you know, was largely, I think, a product of social media, the creation of YouTube, where you, know, you had a number of documentary films produced by amateurs in those years that were quite uh, fatalistic. And I don't find stating the, the science as it is to be in itself a kind of catastrophic position. What I'm saying is that the, the situation, and, and many people have said this before, the situation is obviously uh, very bad. And I'm simply trying to shift the focus a little bit away from uh, producing our way out of an ecological crisis and suggesting that a culture of unmaking and in some cases sabotage will be necessary in order to slow the death spiral of global capitalism. It's something that has developed its capacities over centuries. And so no one is suggesting that you could simply dismantle that in a matter of a few years and I'm also, to be clear, not arguing for a so-called anti-civ or anarcho-primitivist position. Just saying, I'm looking at the next 20 years and, and saying, this is what global capitalism is saying it's going to do. It's going to go on a record spending spree, building new paved roads, new rail lines, new marine ports, you know, new large dams. I think when I started the research several years ago, that was kind of a surprise to me that there's a second revolution in large dam construction happening. And if it is successful in all of its planned trajectories, that it will eliminate most of our chances of some kind of uh, escape from the situation or some kind of soft landing. So I, I'm not presenting what I call Brazantic politics as an easy solution. I just think there has to be a, an acknowledgement that simply building renewable energy is not going to automatically displace the fossil fuel industries, for one. 
that have made it pretty clear with their own corporate projections that they plan to extract well beyond any reasonable limits. I'm not trying to present a kind of capitalist realism that there is no alternative and we're all doomed. It's, it's rather saying, yes, there, there are alternatives, but let's be honest about the realities of such a transition, that you not only have to prevent the exploitive ecocidal system from, from continuing, you also have to deal with the ruins of that system. You know, you have to deal with the, the way that it's transformed the world in very long-term ways. And that's going to have to be part of the solution. Yeah. One of the reasons why I wanted to draw that comparison with capitalist realism is because I guess one of the critiques of it is that it becomes its sort of own over-determining thing. I don't really feel like that is the outcome of your book. And actually, I don't really think that was the outcome of his book either. But one thing I want to ask you to talk about a little bit is the term necropolitics. And my understanding of that term is that it comes from uh, Achillean Bembe, the philosopher. And I want to ask you about it in the context of COVID-19, because as much as COVID-19 is horrific and terrible, I, I do hope that the silver lining of it is that it kind of brings people into a dialogue with certain questions that they've maybe not considered before. And the idea that the state modulates death or kind of has a kind of control over who is exposed to death, I think is a really helpful term for thinking about the predicament we face at the moment. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so necropolitics obviously comes from Mbembe's definition, you know, determining who may live and who must die. And there's the, the sort of long durée explanation of necropolitics that the project of European modernity is, is founded on indigenous genocide and the transatlantic slave trade and so in order to lay the foundation for this project of modernity, and now I, I do think that there is a kind of sense in the ideological commitments of whiteness, of white supremacy, that they would rather destroy the world than hand over the reins to someone else. Like, I think there is that kind of suicidal sensibility there. And, and I cite some examples in the book, especially when Rex Tillerson was the CEO of Exxon and somebody asked him about the, their plans for climate change, he said something like, what good is it to save the planet if humanity suffers? Which is basically saying like, I would sooner commit suicide on, you know, on behalf of millions of people or billions than challenge my pocketbook, you know, than, than challenge my wealth and power. This necropolitical perspective, of course, it probably should trigger some recognition in the time of COVID-19, the ways in which capitalism and the state are making these decisions of who may live and who must die. I just read the other day that, that richer nations have actually denied a kind of generic patent for the COVID-19 vaccines to poorer nations. And it seems pretty clear, for, at least from the news so far, that many of the sort of poorer nations are not going to receive vaccines until maybe a year after wealthier nations have received their vaccines. So that's a sort of 
necropolitics writ large, like it is definitely determining that there will be more deaths in those nations than, than in the wealthier nations. I would hope that COVID-19 has, has kind of alerted people to many of the forms of not just, not just exploitation, but, but instability that, that capitalism, of course, thrives on. It is founded on crisis. We, we had some examples here in Canada, like there were COVID outbreaks at meatpacking plants. Those were places where the outbreaks were particularly concentrated. And then it became apparent that the food chain is basically, and again, this is not to, to sort of judge the ethical nature of meatpacking plants, but it became apparent that the food chain for millions of people was largely dependent on, on a few factories. When, when they were hit with COVID outbreaks, the employers were quite strident in forcing people back to work against their own interests and in, in maintaining their own health. So it's one of those situations that probably should alert people to the fact that this system does not care at all for, for life. You can see it in the economic figures, what capitalism considers wealth. So you have billionaires, at least from the numbers I've seen in Canada and the United States, you have billionaires just increasing their wealth dramatically during the COVID-19 lockdowns while millions of people are being put out of work. Like the system does not even require actual labor to to produce so-called wealth in some cases but that dynamic alone should sort of alert people to the to the nature of what industrial capitalism is it's people suffering uh on mass and billionaires dramatically increasing their wealth at the same time so i don't know if that's particularly what you wanted to address no, yeah. in terms of covid that's kind of exactly what I wanted you to talk about, actually. And just thinking about you talking about uh, kind of meatpacking industries there as well makes me think about the quality in your book of, I think sometimes there's a kind of false dichotomy of the material and the literary or the kind of material, concrete, quite literally, and the linguistic or humanities. And, and, I, and I think you draw them together quite well. And I was wondering if you could talk about how essential it is to because I mean in a way what you're doing is kind of offering a reading of culture and language via a kind of centrality of systems and the material and in this uh, material such as oil and concrete and I was wondering if you could talk about why you think that's essential and what opportunities you think that affords to writers activists academics etc etc yeah there's a really interesting history artistic representation of infrastructure and the role of the arts in, in, in developing industrial infrastructure. You have some examples of states holding literary contests, actually inviting people to write poetry about, for example, the Trans-Amazon Highway. This is during the dictatorship years in Brazil, but they're... they're not the only time that a state has invited its citizens to to sort of wax poetic about roads and i think i think there's a kind of flip side to that that 
by studying artistic genres and their representations of large dams, uh, hydroelectric projects, and uh, roads and trains, that you can elicit a much greater complexity of, of affect, I guess, around infrastructure. You can potentially inspire people in the ways that maybe polemics don't. I've read leftist polemics for many years, and you know I don't have any grudge against them. I just I find certain artistic representations to be more inspiring. So there's like the systematic quality of revolutionary politics, but then there's also what inspires people to make dramatic changes in the world. And I think that's one of the reasons to talk about art and infrastructure and and revolutionary politics. So I'm I'm kind of looking at the way that authoritarian structures have used artistic media and I'm invoking artistic media in in a kind of inverse gesture. And to be clear, like many of the novels and films and photography that I look at in the book are are not revolutionary at all. <laughs> For example, in the uh, chapter on drowned town fiction, I look at the literature around large dam construction, especially in North America, and of course the invention of the Tennessee Valley Authority, which was the government bureaucracy, uh, largely responsible for electrifying the American South. And what you find in many of those books is a kind of erasure of indigeneity in a way that the infrastructure becomes an example of uh, what Rifkin calls settler common sense, that it's like another way of settler authority being imposed, often without even indigenous people in, in the story. I guess what I was trying to get out with the question is, how do you see the relationship between literature, history and infrastructure in, in a way that doesn't chop them up as these kind of separate things and actually that they bleed into each other far more than perhaps people would like to think they do. Yeah, one of the advantages of looking at uh, artistic media and infrastructure is that artistic media are not constrained in the same ways that, for example, an engineering study of a bridge or something like that would be. Artistic media, you know, they don't have the same discursive limitations that social scientific studies, for example, might have. And I find that in infrastructure studies as a field, there are more social scientists than there are people from the arts. So I was hoping to fill a gap in the literature in that way as well. Actually, some of the earliest people to talk about artistic representation of infrastructure come from literary studies. They actually predate the infrastructural turn in the social sciences. And there are a number of disciplinary reasons for that, I guess. But in seeing the, the usefulness of art in the study of infrastructure, you're, you're sort of acknowledging that we need to frame infrastructures in more complex ways than we currently do. So if you look at the popular journalism around infrastructure, certainly here in North America, it is overwhelmingly defined by liberal and conservative views. So there's never a radical view in popular media. 
And beyond that, it's this assumption that repairing infrastructure and building more infrastructure is inherently a good thing. So it's just a question of like who's going to pay for it. So you have, you know, liberals might side a little bit more with the state financing infrastructure and conservatives try, try more often to privatize the financing of infrastructure. But this, this is an incredibly narrow perspective on the impacts of the infrastructure, not just ecologically, but of course, in the book, I talk about what other scholars have called transportation racism. So the ways in which certain kinds of infrastructure can segregate communities, and, and deliberately so, they, they have been built that way. There's also just the aesthetics of infrastructure. Um, I wanted to, one of the reasons I call it infrastructural brutalism is because there is a conjunction between architectural brutalism and infrastructure in the post-war period. So post-World War II, you have a group of French bureaucrats who travel to the United States to get ideas about ideas for reconstruction in in France after the war. And of course, part of this group is the now famous uh, architect Le Corbusier, and he is inspired by the exposed concrete aesthetic of the large dams that he sees, uh, dams built by the TVA. And, you know, of course, he returns to France and, and builds some apartments that become famous for this exposed concrete aesthetic. So there's that sort of historical, you know, meeting of infrastructure and architecture and aesthetics. And it seemed to me like it, it's not something that's talked about very much. The, the fact that we're surrounded by this industrial infrastructure and we have very little to say about its appearance and how that affects us. And, of course, it's, it's ecological impacts, it's impacts on other structural forms of oppression. The discourse around infrastructure tends to be solely about mobility and uh, social connectivity and the, the sort of myth of progress. So by focusing exclusively on the necropolitical and the, the aesthetics of the necropolitical, like, uh, you know, Bifo calls it necro-aesthetics of uh, the United States, he, he's talking about. But I thought that would also be sort of filling in a, a, an absence in the literature and in the public discussion of infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it certainly seems at the minute like one of the biggest challenges of, say, a movement like Black Lives Matter is... I think some people think of structural racism or any kind of structure as something that kind of sits on top of the world. Mm. Whereas I feel like the kind of methodology that you're putting forward, in a, in a way, part of the reason why it's so irksome is because it's far more challenging to think in that way of, you know, the, the kind of fabric of everything is kind of, you know, you can't separate things out quite as easily as, you know, you can't just take the racist bit out. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a much more complex kind of historical process. Um, yeah, like, you know, I, I want to add that um, part, of, part of my thinking is, is because I came of age in the counter-globalization movements and uh, after, you know, 10 or 20 years of that kind of activism, it just became apparent that 
you know, there was lots of talk about building temporary autonomous zones and such. And, and yet, in that same period, global capitalism was basically defining the landscape uh, in which the struggle would happen. Like it was, it was paving everything, you know, uh, famously um, uh, in a five-year period, China poured as much concrete as the United States poured in the entire 20th century. So while we were, were, were sort of fighting in, in a certain um, tactical stance, um, there, wasn't, there wasn't enough attention paid to uh, this, this sort of de- definition of the landscape in which we were, were fighting. Uh, and now, of course, that has changed. Like now there is tremendous focus on uh, trying to prevent new carbon infrastructure um, you know, trying to uh, respect in indigenous rights, um, you know, trying to, <clears throat> excuse me, um, uh, I, think, I think there is a kind of sensibility that, that uh, as, as one of a poet I cite in the book says, that less is more, that sort of less is the, is the way of the future and more is destruction. Yeah. I wondered if I could ask you kind of further along that line of thought, about the the strategies you propose in the book so what does a decolonized infrastructure look like what does a, a decommissioning process look like what does sabotage look like in the next decade or two i suppose yeah i don't think there's a one-size-fits-all version of what i'm calling brisantic politics so brisance is is the shattering effect of an explosive and Essentially, I, I'm presenting that type of politics as a response to the excessive overdevelopment, if you want to use the language of the capitalists. And so it's, it's a kind of politics of unmaking that in some cases would necessitate sabotage, just recognizing that the, the usual routes for people to, to get things done are, are often captured by authoritarian systems. Just random destruction. I'm talking about strategic sabotage that works on the central nodes in, in the networks of global capitalism. So things like, for example, I think it's long been recognized that the, the port of Los Angeles, for example, is a, is a very central strategic location for massive amounts of consumer goods coming from China in particular, and that that then is a central node in distribution of goods across the United States. So recognizing what strategic ways that we can slow or reverse the death spiral of capitalism. In some cases, you, you, know, you can't simply sabotage a piece of infrastructure like a nuclear reactor. You know, that obviously that is insane and you wouldn't try to do that. So you have to look to expert forms of decommissioning, which often take many years to complete and, and can cost billions of dollars as well. There are hundreds of nuclear reactors that are currently in the process of being decommissioned, but there are also many more being constructed. So that, that's the kind of thing that would require a more deliberate approach, a more systematic approach, and resources and expertise. But I think you have to start somewhere. You have to, you know, you have to at least say this should be a project of 
our society. It should be a project to decommission nuclear reactors. This is not uh, like a safe, sustainable uh, form of energy for powering a society. There, you know, there are many other questions embedded in the, in Brzezantic politics. So, what's uh, sort of uh, in the foreground in Canada, at least, is is the struggles of an indigenous people around land claims. This is something that I think it will probably be won through social movements. I cannot foresee the state simply becoming something other than it has been for its entire existence, which is a colonizing entity. So that is to say, it's not simply, Brzezantic politics are not simply a matter of a tactic. There are embedded forms of politics of oppression that, that have to be worked with and through in order to unmake some of the disastrous things that have been made. So the specifics are, are, are difficult to address because it depends where you are and, and what the local conditions are. At the very least, what, one of the things I was saying in the book is that even the estimates we have, let's say, for decommissioning a nuclear reactor, those estimates are under the so-called best conditions. Those are assuming that you're not suffering from uh, cascading impacts of climate change and you don't have political chaos disrupting attempts to carry out these complicated engineering processes, right? So, and I'm assuming that in the decades ahead, if the science is correct, that the tendencies we see now for ecological breakdown uh, will only accelerate. So, it's kind of a, uh, also a, a declaration of the urgency of doing these things before it becomes untenable to do these things. And you just have to deal with a very you know, unstable situation around uh, a very a dangerous technology. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I kind of share your cynicism that you only have to look at Obama's reaction to the kind of Dakota pipeline to realize that, you know, I don't think it's very likely that someone like Joe Biden's really that dedicated, even though he kind of puts forward this image. Up, you know, The final thing I want to ask you about is the book came out in September, and I was wondering, since the book came out, are there any books or films or artworks or cultural artifacts that uh, you think speak to the project in your book really well? Uh, since the book's come out that you might kind of con- uh, include or write about in the future since the book's come out? That's a good question, and I'd, <laughs> I'd have to, th- have to think about spot. that. I've been reading some novels that certainly speak to people thinking about the future of urbanism. One is called The Heap, and the other, I can't remember the name of the other one. Sorry, I wasn't, uh, wasn't really ready to answer that. No, um, it's okay. I know for a fact that there have been. I mean, one, <laughs> one of the... Even one of the events that happened as the book was going to press was across Canada. They, you know, they had a, a sort of social movement called Shut Down Canada, and Indigenous people across the country and and their allies were blocking uh, rail traffic, and it basically shut down rail traffic for an entire week across the country. 
so this is a fascinating sort of event for me, but it's also, I think, proof that thinking in logistical terms is, is the way to at least slow this system. And I mean, I'm going to be presenting on a couple of books in a few weeks that one is written by a, a guy who works at the Royal Military College, or at least he used to, and he wrote he wrote a nonfiction book called Time Bomb, and he wrote a fiction book called The Uprising. And the nonfiction book is about the, the sort of logistical weaknesses to uh, Canadian federalism. He is literally afraid of an indigenous uprising and how it could paralyze the country. And, and he's taking it from a liberal perspective. He's saying like, so how do we forward reconciliation with indigenous nations and, and prevent this from happening? But then in the fictional book, he writes about it as, as a reality, like it's a, a small band of indigenous resistance fighters who, who literally like shut down the country. And so I'm going, going to be talking about that. That's something that, that uh, I didn't have time to put in the, or, or really the place to put in the book. But it is something that I'll be writing about in, in the near future. I think that's a really interesting example. I mean, I only ask because I, I've kind of seen a few films or kind of watched films whilst kind of checking your book out and kind of reading through it in preparation for this. And I found it a really interesting way to reframe certain films I've watched recently. So like a film like Atlantics, which is like about Senegalese immigrant workers. And, but then there's this kind of like gothic thing in there where midway through the film, not to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it yet, but it, it kind of switches from this almost like social realist drama to kind of like ghost story. But it, I just found the paradigm through which you're writing in the book a really helpful way to kind of think through that film in a way. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you did. I, I mean, for what it's worth, this is kind of a weird coincidence, but the project that I'm working on next is actually uh, about horror cinema. So <laughs> no, that makes complete sense uh, though. Like, yeah. And, oh, right. Like there, there were things that I had planned to put in the book, but uh, just didn't for whatever reason. Like there's a Tom Hardy film called Locke. Oh yeah. 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 You would know the location better than I. It takes place mostly with him within his, in his car taking phone calls. He's like a, a contractor on a construction site and it plays this metaphor of like, if you have a crack in the foundation of cement, that it can multiply into all of these other problems, which based on my reading of concrete is like, it's not entirely true. Like, I think there are some cracks in cement or in concrete that, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, a, it's like a normal part of it. But anyway, uh, that, that would be one film I think somebody could read in terms of infrastructural brutalism or other. Yeah. No, it's funny. It's, I actually know someone who's in that film. <laughs> Oh really? Yeah, he's one of the people. I think he's one of the people that kind of calls him in the car. But I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't made that connection actually with that film. And you're right, and that's yeah. Maybe I'm just not well versed enough in film theory or whatever. But the kind of chapter about kind of road movies of like why do people not write about the road movie from the kind of perspective of you know what is a road? What are the kind of material qualities of a road? What does it actually mean about this kind of huge genre of cinema that it's based on? this kind of infrastructure and maybe that's just me not being well read enough but I'd never engaged with it and I think it's a really helpful way to think about art and cinema 
It is a bit odd that uh, so much of the scholarship around road movies doesn't have anything to say about the materiality of the road. I, I don't, I'm not sure why that is. I, maybe they're just, until the past 10 years or so, maybe there wasn't a developed enough discourse in, in the academic writing around infrastructure to inspire people to think in that way. But yeah, most of the road movie genre scholarship is about the sort of psychology of the freedom of the road. And it's about the, the vehicles that they use and other dynamics. But um, it doesn't have much to say about uh, the materiality of the road. I was, I was going to say earlier, like, there's another film that you could read in terms of infrastructural brutalism from a recent horror film. I'll probably mispronounce this, but I think it's pronounced Betal. Uh, B-E-T-A-A-L and it was on uh, Netflix and it's a production from India that is kind of like a zombie story in which a project of building a road through this mountain reawakens this this like British imperialist ghost <laughs> uh, and you, you literally have like red-coated zombies descending on this Indian village. And, you know, it's an okay film, um, but I, I was kind of interested in the way that it ends with, it's like a short series, and it ends with these ships sailing into the port of Mumbai, and it's literally like like these ghost ships, right? So it's literally like a second coming of imperialism, and um, but it's all initiated by this infrastructure project of, of building a road and, and drilling through this uh, this uh, mountain or hill. Yeah. I won't go on too much, but there's. have you seen a film called Nightingale? It's... Uh, yes. I, yeah, no, I just thought that what was it quite... One thing that I realized about that film that I, I was sort of thinking about as I was reading your book is the way that the indigenous characters um, who are kind of in the process of being colonized, they can almost like freely divert from a path so they don't have to stick to the paths that the colonizer characters have to so that... And throughout the film, there's various paths and there are a few roads and each time that they're kind of about to run into trouble, the kind of indigenous guide, you know, he doesn't have to use the path. And, and kind of having read your writing about the road as kind of, kind of this dialectical, both in a way limiting and a kind of form of freedom, I, I thought that was quite an interesting thing about that film that I hadn't really noticed before. Yeah, it's sort of a, con a contentious film, I guess. Like, as some people have noted, it it tends to conflate like the oppression of the, the woman in the, who's the central character with the oppression of the indigenous people in the film. But uh, I, I honestly, I hadn't thought of it in terms of the road. That's a, you know, that's a, a good point. I hadn't, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I just turn it off sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, maybe not to pull out another traffic, pun but you know a busman's holiday you know maybe it's uh <laughs> helpful not to <laughs> over focus okay that's right yeah <laughs> i'm gonna stop before <laughs> i embarrass myself with too many more puns thanks for taking the time to talk to me about your book i, I really appreciate it i won't keep you any longer <laughs> sure, <laughs> but, um, sure no no that's fine that's fine i appreciate it so yeah best of luck If you'd like to hear more discussions, interviews and readings from across the MIT Press's output, you can subscribe to the podcast on any of the major streaming platforms. And if you'd like to support us, 
please consider going over to iTunes and giving us a five-star review. Finally, I'd like to say thank you to Samantha Doyle, who edits and mixes the podcast, and Kristen Galeno, who provided the soundtrack. <laughs>